If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 4. We're not going to do a, a typical Father's Day message today, although there will be reference in the text. We're going to go and jump right into what we've been going through. We've been going through a series that we've entitled Sketches in Exodus with the undertones. What is on there? Oh, with the undertone being that of the fear of the Lord. And what I mean by that is when, when we put this together, I kind of looked out and thought, what does the church need to hear right now? What you are dealing with every day as you interact with society. And one of the things that I see that has been just lost, not only um, in the world, but really in the church, is this idea of the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord has a lot of different meanings to it. And one of the things that's cool is through the book of Exodus, it's woven through the book of Exodus. And so as we go through these sketches, we're going to see this idea and how it applies to our life. But if you remember the last time we got together in Exodus, kind of as a recap, um, Moses was 40 years old. Somewhere between 30 and 40 years old, um, Moses was found out that he was no longer an Egyptian, that he actually had Hebrew roots, and he chose to forsake the riches of Egypt, we're told, and to suffer with his people. Around 40 years old, he did something. He saw some injustice, and he went and took matters into his own hands, thinking that he was the deliverer, expecting that the people would see him as such, and he killed an Egyptian. Well, they didn't receive him. The next day, they kind of outed him. He got afraid, and so he ran into the wilderness to this place called Midian, where he stayed for the next 40 years. And so in that 40 years, Mary, uh, Moses got married, Moses had two kids, and at 80 years old, approaching the, the, the time of retirement, right, just kind of living the good life, one day he looks up and God gets his attention with a bush that's burning that isn't consumed. Moses turns aside, he goes and he enters into this conversation with God where God introduces himself to Moses. Moses had heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had heard about the people that were suffering, talking about a deliverer. So now in his twilight years, towards the end, living life, God calls him and it's in that conversation where he meets God that God says, Moses, I hear my people. I hear their cries. He says, Moses, I see what they're going through. I, I see their problem. And then he says, and Moses, I feel their pain. And the good news is I am sending you to deliver them. At which point the 80-year-old who's, in, who's entered into retirement says, yeah, I, that's not me. <laughs> you, you got the wrong person here. Um, you need to find somebody else. I'm good right? Life is good right now. Besides which, they ain't going to listen to me. They're not going to believe me. Plus, I stutter. I got a lot of inabilities. I can't talk real well. You're going to have to find somebody else. So let's pick up the sketch in Exodus chapter 4 in verse 21. Exodus 4, 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, and I want to stop right there for a second. Moses approaches God and he says, God, you're going to have to send someone else. Yeah, I'm not qualified. I can't talk. I can't speak. Wrong person. And God responds essentially by saying, when you go back to Egypt, and you know what I love about that, you guys, is God is not captive to our fears. Moses was afraid. When, when you watch the interaction between Moses and God, Moses is finding every excuse underneath the sun not to go. 
First, he looks at it and he goes, well, the people aren't going to accept me. He knows the danger. And he goes, and I can't do it. And what I love about this, you guys, is God is not afraid of what we're afraid of. He's not captivated by our fears. Our, fear, our fears aren't a challenge for him, right? And so whenever hesitancy enters into us, that we wouldn't walk according to what God has for our life, you know what? The Lord has a way of bringing us around to see it his way, does he not? Have you ever noticed that? Where you're kind of hesitant, I got excuses, I got reason, and he'll let, his, he'll let us plead our case with him, right? He'll let us throw it all out and say, you don't understand this, you don't understand this. He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. He'll let us do all that. But for some reason, a believer, if they keep following the Lord and their heart really is, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done, somehow we come around and we see it his way. It may take a little while, but he's got this way of just cracking our heart and forming us and shaping us. In five months, six months, a year, two years later, you find yourself having the conversation you said you would never have. He has a way of melting us and putting us on his path. And if you doubt that, ask Jonah. Jonah, go to Nineveh. I ain't going to Nineveh. No way. Well, where did Jonah end up? He ended up in Nineveh, right? It was as if God was saying, fine, I'll take your stubborn rear end there the hard way. But you're going to go. God has this way, you guys. And this resonates with us. Because it would be nice for all of us to say that when the Lord speaks to our hearts, that we'll actually listen. How many of you guys listen the first time God says something? No, you don't, <laughs> right? Oftentimes, we do the same thing as Moses does. The anxiety and the fear, it captivates us, and we're like, yeah, I'm not good. And God's patient with us, and guess what? He brings us around. He brings us to the place where finally we're doing the thing that we never thought we would do. And so, you guys, Moses is commissioned, right, to go back to Egypt. He gets it, he understands it, and God gives him a message to bring to the Egyptian king, Pharaoh. Here's the message in Exodus chapter four, verse 22. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. I want you to jump into the text for a second with me, right? Just Jump in and place yourself there and imagine you're Moses, right? You've been gone for 40 years. You're in retirement and God pulls a Tom Brady on you and he pulls you out, right? And, and there you are with another 80-year-old, an 83-year-old, your brother, right? He's your traveling companion. You've got your wife and your kids. You're going, not bringing an army, you're, you're not riding in on chariots. You don't even have a weapon. I mean, you have a staff. It does pretty cool things. But you're going into the most mighty and powerful kingdom in the world, and you're going to give the most powerful man in the world a message, and the message is slightly antagonistic, <laughs> right? Like, hey, let my kids go, or I'm going to kill yours. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm just saying this is me, on the trip from Midian to Egypt on one of those nights by the campfire with my sleeping brother who's 83, right, we're going to go tear it up, <laughs> on one of those nights, I'm going to be sitting back thinking to myself, man, I don't know that this is going to go real well, 
right? I'm going to be thinking to myself, like, Lord, I feel like you're kind of setting me up to fail here. And, and this is like dangerous stuff. People get killed for this stuff. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's tantamount to, it's similar to, you know, the strategy of walking around a city seven times and yelling on the seventh day and watching everything fall down. This is ridiculous. We got, uh, we, we're, we're 100 and what's 83 and 80? 163. We got 163 years between the two men of us. We could barely hold our eyes open, right? And you want us to go tell the king of Egypt, let our kids go or we're killing yours? Doesn't seem super wise. You guys, what God is doing, I think, is clear. Deliverance was not going to come by the hand of man. It was not going to come by the might of man, by the army of men, by the intellect of men, or by the persuasion of men. Deliverance was going to come, you guys, from God himself. And he was setting it up to make sure history would bear witness that two 80-plus-year-old guys could not deliver 600,000 people on their own. Amen? So God was setting this up to where he would get the glory. And what we see in this is very important. God cares deeply. Listen, God cares deeply about the freedom of his people, and he takes it personal when they are bound, made slaves, and mistreated. He takes it personal. And that's the heart of a father. Did you know this is the first time in the Bible where God refers to himself as a father? He's calling Israel his son. And what you see here, guys, is in the deliverance, the people are being shown that a protective father rises up against an enemy. And listen, when someone stands in the way of what God wanted from them, what does the text say God wanted? Let them go so they could do what? They could worship me. God wanted the relationship with them. And there was a tyrant, there was a a cruel king who stood in the way of the people seeing their God and knowing their God. And I'll tell you, fathers, listen, one of the best things that you can do, one of your most important, you know, responsibilities is not to teach your kid how to fire a gun, although that might be great. It's not to, to, to have a wonderful coffee dates with your daughters, although it could be great. The best thing you could do is give them the Lord and don't get in their way. Don't stumble them with your actions and with your life. You are imperfect and you will make mistakes. But the best and number one thing you could do for your child is let them worship God and don't be a hindrance to it. Help them. And that's the heart of a father you see here. And it's to that end, you guys, that God's purpose is for Moses is sent to Pharaoh to say, get them out of there so they can come to me. So they can worship me. So Moses is set. He knows he's commissioned. In Exodus 4, 28, him and Aaron arrive back in Egypt. They gather all the elders together. They gather the people together and they say, deliverance is here. Deliverance is here. God has spoken to us. We are now here to deliver you. And in the very next verse in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, the people believe them. They get excited. There's anticipation. Finally, 400 years of bondage is over, and now we get to go free. Oh, praise God. And up to this point, everything is great. Moses' fears in Exodus 4.1 that he had, they're not going to listen to me, they're not going to believe me, totally unfounded, everything is great until you read chapter 5. Because when we look in chapter 5, you guys, 
things don't stay great. And I think it's here, you guys, this morning that God has a word for some of you. He has a word for some of you. Because what you read in this is real life. It's real life. Look at it with me. Exodus chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Exodus 5, 1. Afterwards, after the people worshiped God in, in, in verse 31 of chapter 4, they were excited, anticipation. After this, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people of their foremen, you shall no longer give these people straw to make brick as in the past. Let them go and gather the straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they make made in the past shall not you shall impose on them, you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pray and pay no regard to their lying words. Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. Drop down to verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel, this is a Jew now, came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you tear, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, if you got time to worship God, you got time to go get your own straw. Verse Next verse, go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and in his servants and you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to these people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses commanded Pharaoh to let the people go. Numbers eleven twenty one says there were at least 600,000 people. So this command given to, given to Pharaoh had serious economic implications, right? Pharaoh couldn't just let 600,000 people go from his workforce. It would crush Egypt. But folks, the bigger blow was to Pharaoh's ego. Folks, nobody commanded the king of Egypt to do anything. 
The king of Egypt was seen as a god by the people he ruled. Strength, you guys, undergirded his throne. It undergirded his rulership. And he was enthralled with power and authority. So for him to simply say no to Moses' command to let the people go was not enough. Right? It's not like Pharaoh was just going to say, you know what, Moses, that just isn't going to happen, bro. So just go on. You can, talk. you can plead with me 10 times if you want. The answer is no, 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 no. Just leave. Go away. It wasn't that. Pharaoh felt that his rule was being threatened. He felt that his authority was being challenged. And the last thing he was going to do is to let that go unchecked. And so the people would have to pay for suggesting that Pharaoh's authority was not absolute and that some other authority like God could tell him what to do. He was going to make an example out of them. He was a ruthless leader that went after to punish the people that didn't, that, that tried to direct him. But listen, you guys, it's in this text that you have this incredible life lesson that if you haven't experienced it yet, you should probably prepare yourself because it's coming. Check it out. Moses arrives in Egypt and he tells the people, I'm your deliverer, right? They accept him. They believe him. As a result, we're told that the last verse of chapter four, they bow down and they worship God. The anticipation and excitement is, yes, God is gonna deliver us. We have been looking for this the entire time. Great anticipation. Then Moses goes in to talk to Pharaoh, having the authority of God to do so. Pharaoh rejects his command, and Moses comes out, and now the people's job got worse, and their life got harder. The people's life did not get easier when the deliverer showed up. And what you find is this principle, folks. You find a principle that oftentimes Oftentimes, before deliverance, things get worse before they get better. Hear what I'm saying. Oftentimes, before you experience the promises of God, before you experience deliverance, things get worse before they get better. Expectations are oftentimes not met by the deliverer at first. You weren't thinking this, right? Christ comes into your life and you're told, well, God has a, a purpose and a plan for your life. How many of you have heard that? And he does. And, and, if, and if you're ill or your marriage is destroyed or your finances are a wreck or whatever it is, the idea is come to Jesus and he'll make your life better. The deliverer will set you free from the pain. And what we find out in reality is something oftentimes quite different. That things got worse. That the marriage wasn't healed right away. And the pain wasn't taken away right away. And the finances weren't fixed right away. And the kid didn't come back to the Lord. But you've been praying and you've been paving your path with weeks and months and years of prayer. And what you're finding is it's worse than it ever has been. And what we don't realize, you guys, and man, oh man, we need to learn this lesson because you're going to see in a second where it can take us. What we don't realize is that pain and disappointment are often precursors to life and health and joy. Often precursors, folks. Deep wounds of sadness, you guys, that leave lifelong scars often precede promises of liberty and freedom. Did you know that? Disappointment. How many parents 
have prayed, believing their child will be delivered from addiction or apathy. Man, I wish they would just get things right with the Lord. Come on, man. It's been 5, 10, 15 years. Or they're addicted only to see things get worse. You understand what I'm saying? Have you ever been there? How many have prayed and they've asked God, God, would you move in my marriage? Would you move there? Would you heal her heart? Would you heal his heart? Would you change him? Would you give them love? And it seems like the prayers are coming out and the answer is go get your own straw. Right? I mean, oftentimes that seems the case. God, where are you at in this relationship? Where are you at in this career? Where are you at with my health? I'm, I, you know, I'm sick, I'm ill, I was prayed for. Now they're telling me I got three months to live. Are you even here? Do you even listen? Do you even care? The request didn't bring favor from you. It seemingly brought judgment because things are worse and you still, as Moses said, haven't delivered your people. Folks, I've been a believer for 30 years almost and I've experienced something that's true many times and that is often before a breakthrough, often before a move of God, maybe similar to what I had anticipated, life gets really hard and the paths that I walk on are paved with defeat, seemingly. The promises of God seem to hide themselves in every situation in life, though I'm praying and I'm faithful to pray. And let me tell you something about that. It brings a person to the brink. It brings a person to the place where we start questioning God based on the reality we're living compared to the expectation we had. God, this, this isn't what I thought. This isn't what I expected. And I'll tell you what it does. It starts to create something in our heart called doubt. Now, God can handle the doubt, just so you know, and he does. But there was situations not too long ago where I was questioning the theology of God. I was questioning scripture where it says very clearly, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's also going to reap. There was situations in my life where I was saying, that ain't true. That's not real, because if it were real, the expectation that I have and that I've been praying for suggests you would have done something different to deliver people. It brings you to the brink where you're like, you question your own faith, and you start going through a checklist. You start thinking, okay, you're not answering my prayer. Maybe you're not answering my prayer because I'm screwed up. Because I'm the one that's in sin. And you start looking at all these things in your life and then you start questioning the character of God. Well, I messed up and he's getting back at me to pay me back. And it brings you to this chaos inside your mind. And I want you to see in this text, you're not alone. Everybody in the narrative was guilty of it. 